Life's too short for crap marketing. The Got Marketing Podcast is for marketers, business owners, and entrepreneurs who want marketing that's fun, accessible, and meaningful. Join me, Mia Feilman, for inspired chats with my favorite marketing insiders about marketing that works, campaigns that inspire, and the fads, fakery, and false profits to avoid. Hello, friend, and welcome to the first ever Got Marketing Mixtape, where we revisit the top three downloaded episodes of 2023. In this episode with Kate Merriweather, we discussed why small business owners are making the jump from Instagram to LinkedIn. What are some common myths around LinkedIn that you would like to bust here and now? Yes. So it's boring is something I hear a lot. And it was. So if you haven't jumped on LinkedIn for a while, and the last time that you did, you scrolled and you weren't really engaged with the content that you were seeing, it's likely that you would come to that conclusion and that it's quite corporate and professional and it's really just for people who are looking for a job. And as I've said, that's not the case anymore. It's much more fun, dynamic. There's great creators on there to learn from, which is really nice. And just a bit of a community as well. And the people that are really driving the change on LinkedIn are the ones who are the breath of fresh air, who build a personal brand. So that's really important on LinkedIn now. One of those myths is LinkedIn is not the place for a personal brand. And that's a mistake I wouldn't want anyone to make. Good one. That's such a good one. So am I right in saying that you believe that it's okay to share personal content on LinkedIn? To a degree. I'd like to do it as part of a strategy because I'm on LinkedIn to build my business and I do share personal things from time to time, but I do it in a strategic way. So it's actually all meant to just drive more awareness of my business and my offers and the way that I work and the transformations that I deliver. And that's what I teach my clients as well. So You certainly can, but in a strategic way, I would say. I feel exactly the same. Like if you can't make the segue to your business in somehow, somehow then best avoided. Like no one wants to know what you ate for breakfast or what your workout was today unless you can find a way to marry it with one of your business objectives because otherwise you're just getting cheap engagement for engagement's sake. Mm. And of course, people are going to congratulate you on your engagement, but is anyone going to book a discovery call off the back of you announcing that you just recently got engaged? Wow. What are some things we all need to stop doing on LinkedIn right now? Well, swearing is a big one. Ooh. So LinkedIn is a bit like a conservative, your old nun teacher, you know, you're like, And LinkedIn doesn't like swearing and it's a bit of a shame because I'm a bit of a sweary person in real life, but there are a few ways you can get around it. Like if you had a swear in an image or in a video, it's not as good at reading the swearing, but LinkedIn puts people in LinkedIn jail for all sorts of things, which is so irritating because we're on LinkedIn, we want to have a good experience and we want to be successful and then you get put in jail. I find that really irksome. But yes, don't swear on LinkedIn. What does LinkedIn jail mean? I've never heard of this. So it will suspend your account for a period of time and if you continue to swear or do the things that will land you in LinkedIn jail, you can 
be banned permanently, which would be a big shame in my view. So it's funny how some of the things that LinkedIn lets through to the keepers are way worse than swearing, Um, like some of the really irritating DMs you get and spams and fake profiles seem to be fine, but if someone just says, you know, FF, you know, for F's sake or something like that or calls, you know, calls something out and says it's bullshit, you can be put in jail. It's really irksome. I would love for you to share some of your favorite LinkedIn tactics, some actionable bits of advice that uh, people can implement straight away. I would really encourage you to not lurk on LinkedIn. So you scroll, you read a bit of content and then you go on with your day. Could comment, even liking posts is a great start because then you teach the algorithm what you like and then the algorithm learns what you like and it serves you up more great creators. So if you put a bit of effort into educating the algorithm, which you can do today, it will start to suggest great people and help you find more people and then you will enjoy LinkedIn more, which is very important because if you don't enjoy it, it becomes just another chore. And if we're in business and we've got enough chores, that's the last thing we need is to go, oh, now I have to go on LinkedIn and do some engagement or post something on LinkedIn because I don't want to, but I have to. Mm. That's not sustainable. So I think when you enjoy LinkedIn, it's much easier to get into it and post content because when you post content, you get comments. Like I'm always very touched by the comments that I get and I appreciate them. And then I go and comment on their their content and a little community builds. And that's a lot of fun. Whereas if you're just scrolling and lurking, you're missing out on the opportunities. Even as a consumer, just to be part of a community, if nothing else, be part of a community. That's a great start. Business is so much better when you find your, especially the people that yes. are like-minded and build you up instead of drag you down. And, yes. you know, it's so much better. It's like, we're all in the shit. We might as well like find good people to waddle around in there with. Absolutely. And look, if you don't like LinkedIn much, you, your views tend to change when you start to make money out of LinkedIn. Like when you start to get leads and people coming to you wanting to spend money, you won't hate LinkedIn anymore. You'll be okay with it. I promise you. Yeah. Well, let's get into that because that's that's pretty compelling. Do you focus on inbound on LinkedIn? Do you do a bit of outbound? I used to be very anti-outbound because you see it, and it's not just on LinkedIn. You see these DMs that are like you connect with someone, and then they're like, "Hey, do you, you know? I see that you're a coach, and you, you know, do you want my free?" 150 page book or do you want to join my group or do you want to endorse me and I'm like no I don't want to do any of those things or here's a blog uh let's get to know each other what do you do like it's all there on my profile buddy so I was very anti-dms I feel there is a way to use dms strategically because I know from the algorithm that if you are dming someone on linkedin then you're more likely to see their written post so you can use that again to your benefit So I encourage people to DM me and I will DM people if they say something like, oh, I really need help with this. I don't know what I'm doing. Then I might DM them and I don't pitch. I never DM them a pitch, but I might just start a conversation with them. Sometimes I use them as market research and I might say, could you tell me a bit about why you're struggling? I'd really love to know because I want to help people with this. And I've just got some fantastic just insights from people. So that is lovely. And then 
I do know that my posts are also being seen by them and I'm seeing theirs. So I can use that to my advantage and talk to some of their pain points potentially in my content. So the spammy DMs are a pain. Don't bother. A lot of people feel really icky about it. And I think any tactic that makes you feel icky is that's your instincts telling you that it's not right. Trust that feeling. You can pay attention to that. However, there's also some tactics that make you feel icky that you should be doing and push yourself out of your comfort zone too. So it's knowing the difference between which one is it. Is it one that just feels instinctively uncomfortable or pushy or salesy or is it something that I just don't want to do because I'm afraid? In this episode with Ashley Drager, we talk about marketing strategy and how many strategies you really need. Let's start with something that's potentially easy. What exactly is a marketing strategy in your terms, Ashley? I really look at a marketing strategy as your intentional plan to take you from where you're at in your business to where you want to be, which is achieving whatever goals you have set out for yourself. Um, I don't want to say strictly income and sales goals, although that is usually at the core of what most people come to me looking for you know, support with their marketing for. But there's so many other things that you could be looking to achieve with your marketing efforts. So the strategy is really just knowing what you're going to be doing, when you're going to be doing it, why you're going to be doing it, and how that relates back to whatever your goals are for your marketing and for your business. So um, what are some of the things that you think you need to include in a marketing strategy? You mentioned what you need to be doing, how you need to be doing. Can you get a little bit more specific, just top line? Yeah. So I work primarily with service-based businesses. I do some product-based, but speaking mostly to the service-based industry, for me, the marketing strategy really comes down to three things. Who your ideal client is, what your offers are, and what your messaging is. To me, that really encompasses pretty much anything that you're going to be doing with your marketing and with your marketing strategy. You know, What content are you going to be creating? Who are you going to be talking to? What are you selling? Why do they care about what you're selling? Mm. You know, What are their pain points? What are their desires? I feel like all of that really gets covered in those three categories. Mm. So whenever I'm working with somebody... I usually always start with with those three. Typically, the offers for getting very specific because who your ideal client is or who your target market is, could there's so many different people, so many different groups that you could be speaking to. But ultimately, your offer or what you're selling is specific to your skill set, which mm. isn't nearly as easily adjusted versus the specific demographic or the target group that you're speaking to. And how do you go about working with them about making sure that their offer is going to resonate with that target audience? What sort of goes into that? Usually when people come to me, they've already validated their offer in some way. It's not usually a brand new, never tested, never explored concept. So usually when I'm talking to them, I ask, you know, what are people saying about your services or what are they, what are they saying about your offers? What questions are they asking you? What feedback are you getting? You know, when, when they come to you to start working with you with your services or your offers, what specifically are they saying that they want help overcoming? Why are they connecting with you in the first place? And that usually brings it down to a very, I don't want to say like simple or basic, but the, the most foundational level to everything else. And then that's where we can really get deeper into, you know, what are their pain points? What are their desires? What are they struggling with? What are the challenges? All of those different pieces. 
Yeah, fabulous. Okay, so then we come to the crux of the issue. Is there one marketing strategy? Is there a strategy for every channel? Do you need a brand strategy and a marketing strategy and a content strategy and a digital strategy? Can you talk me through your views? And I know that the million billion marketers that exist don't all get into a room and agree. In fact, we never agree on anything. And I think most marketers <laughs> are, are, are marketers in quotation marks. So um, I'd love to just hear your view on this, Ashley, in terms of like how many strategies do we need? Oh, I love this question. Probably people are going to hate my answer, but it, I think it depends. I think it depends on the the size of the business, the the needs, the scale, the size of the offer, all of those things. So, um, you know, for example, the SEO strategy, you don't necess- you don't need an SEO strategy if you're not if you don't have a website, right? Like that's going to be really where a lot of the SEO strategy is going to come in for. I mean, sure we could talk about landing pages or, you know, that kind of stuff anything that's Google searchable, but depending on what your marketing so I guess it, my answer would probably start with, you need the marketing strategy to know what other strategies you need. But I don't think that you need to start out with having every single one of those strategies. I think you start with your main strategy and then add those pieces in as you need them. You know, if you're, if you're just first starting out in your business, you're a solopreneur, freelancer, probably don't need a brand strategy nearly as much as you need the business or the marketing strategy, right? But if you're at, you know, seven figures, multi-seven figures, yeah, you probably need a brand strategy at that scale, at that size, but mm. depends on a lot of other factors. It's not going to be black and white, cut and dry because marketing, it's a test. Nine-letter word for a test. <laughs> I love that. That's <laughs> so good. So you work with service-based businesses in a couple of years into business. Can you talk us through like what a typical sort of roadmap would look like in terms of like, okay, we start with our marketing strategy. What would then come next after that? Yeah. So when I'm first building out a strategy for someone, I always try to get their what they're comfortable with a monthly budget being mm. to implement that strategy, right? It's like you said, it's great having this beautifully crafted, articulate slide deck of a marketing strategy that outlines all of these things. But if there's not the implementation on the back end of it, it doesn't matter. It's just, it's a waste of money, right? Mm. So knowing what that monthly budget is and the capacity for the business owner, the team to implement it, that's where the conversation gets directed when I'm presenting them the strategy that I've built out. So, you know, how much content do they want to create versus how much content do they want me to be creating? And, um, you know, do they already have a team that's going to be doing everything for them? Or do, do we need to hire a team? Mm. So it really depends on you know what that strategy looks like, how much money they have to implement it, and how much time and interest they have of doing it themselves. It's always a balance of, of those three. Yeah. If you can't be consistent with it, then we need to adjust that strategy to figure out a different way to accomplish whatever goals we're going to be set up to achieving. Absolutely. I mean, doing something once is not going to get the job done, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. With how much is going out these days, the the number of times that people need to see an offer, or see, you know, see something for a brand before they're willing to take an action is, it's growing from what it was just a couple of years ago. I think it's sitting at about 30, mm-hmm. 30 touch points before people are 
ready to take action after hearing about something. Used to be seven. That's right. Yeah. In the Mad Men era. That, yeah. <laughs> you know, bring back the chain smoking and yeah. the rule of seven. <laughs> no, don't, don't bring back the chain smoking. No. no. <laughs> no. All right. Any final thoughts about quantity, quality of strategies before we move on? Yeah, I think I think I just wanted to mention that a lot of the online space has made strategy seem so complex mm. and that you have to hire everyone in order to have effective marketing to get good results. And as a marketer, as somebody who would sell marketing services, I just I don't think that that's true. I think that everybody makes it seem too complex. And it doesn't have to be. I think that there's definitely a time and place for hiring specialists and experts. You know, like I'm not an SEO expert. I would hire somebody if I were bringing SEO into my strategy. But like I said before, you don't have to have everything to get results. Start with what you can be very consistent with and add things in as you need, hire out as you need versus having everything done right at the very get-go and expecting to see very quick ROI on a short time span. Yeah. And also we need to talk about the elephant in the room, which is that traditionally we'd create a strategy before we would start going, you know, like before you actually started running your business, you would actually have a strategy, but that was because we were launching into known markets, you know, an accountant was building an accounting practice and the path for how to go from, you know, zero to a fully scaled traditional accounting practice was pretty well laid. Um, And then likewise, if you were launching a product into a supermarket in Australia, that was millions of brands have done that before. And so we can see what strategies have worked and what haven't worked. Now we're dealing with online businesses where we're launching into markets where they don't exist yet. We're creating those markets. We're creating those products. We are productizing services. That hasn't been done before. Like what would have been the point of Uber writing a comprehensive marketing strategy before they actually started running this disruptive business model? And I read about this in the Harvard Business Review that actually we as startups and online businesses that are, we're building categories, we're building markets. We need to have this mentality of always being in beta. We just need, that's where we live because we are making this up as we are going along. We are literally building the plane while it is in the sky. So I think that's an even bigger argument for why you should just start light. Start with those three things that you mentioned, Ashley, rather than over-investing in a strategy where you don't have as much of the inputs as an established brand would have because you are forging a new category. You are, you know, you are just, you're making this up as you are going along. And so we need to talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. I think that when you're very, very first starting out, there's still a benefit to having an intentional plan that you're putting together, you know, knowing why you're doing something so that you can be very consistent with it. But the strategies that I would write for a brand new startup do not look the same versus somebody who's already in seven figures, right? Mm. Somebody who's already in seven figures, we're going to be talking a lot more about a SWOT analysis, the situation analysis versus someone who's, you know, maybe they're the only person on the team or they have one other person. I'm probably not going to go nearly as deep into those areas because they're just, I just don't think they're as relevant, mm. right? You know, they're going to be the exact same 
or very, very similar for a lot of startups versus somebody who's been in business for you know three to five years plus, who's at those higher revenue levels. Yeah, so just, you know, like you said, knowing what you're doing and why you're doing it and be consistent, take that data and then evolve it. Mm. Make some adjustments. Agree, yeah. And I've got another view on this as well that I also was reading recently about this notion that, okay, you've got your marketing strategy, which is the most important part and you and I agree on that. And then when it comes to applying that to all different channels, you know, social media, email marketing, PR, SEO, really you can ask yourself one question, which is how can I be of value to my audience? So how can I use email to be of value to my audience? How can I use social media to be of value to my audience? How can I use, you know, search engine optimization to be of value to my audience? Well, I can make it so that it's really easy for them to get to where they're going and label things and, you know, give good headings and like, you know, all of that. So I really like that because I've been thinking about in preparation for this chat with you, we really, we have one strategy, one marketing strategy, and it's quite big because we add the other channels to the back of it. But really, it comes down to that value-based strategy. How am I going to use email marketing to be a value to my audience? And then if you approach it from that perspective, then you're always going to hit the nail on the head, right? Because you are always serving that target audience. Marketing Circle is the Campaign Del Mar experience reimagined. When you join the ecosystem, you receive access to all Campaign Del Mar's programs, including the beloved Campaign Classroom, our proprietary Campaign Builder tool, one-on-one sessions with me and my team, and a tight-knit community. Join others in the same boat as you, wearing all the hats and juggling all the balls. Intentionally designed for entrepreneurs and marketers who want to build coveted brands, Our strategic and creative marketing ecosystem is your ticket to future-proofing your brand. Marketing Circle is the antidote to marketing's stormy seas. Learn more at campaigndelmar.com. In this episode with Letitia Andrak, we chat about when to trust your intuition and when to look to data to make decisions for your business. What is it about the gurus and their antics that bothers you? Yes. So we connected because I saw your campaign, which was a beautiful campaign, about your your croisade, your croisade against the marketing guru. And I am on the same croisade against what I call the self-declared business guru. So those beautiful people who are out there claiming that they will get you to 50K a month without any knowledge of business, of strategy, with no foundation, and then you end up, maybe you will reach those 50K a month, but you don't track your profit. You don't have strong foundation around, you know, having a resilient framework that will get you through and retain those beautiful clients and nurture them to the next stage. You will not have the right team around you to scale to that level. And this annoys you, me so much because I have a background in business. I am coming from one of the best business schools in the world. And I have spent 15 years in strategy and in business doing innovation and strategy work to create those strong foundations for business owner. And I'm really annoyed by those guru. It's like the slim fast kind of recipe. It's like you will get to a big business, but can you handle it? 
Do you have the structure for it? Do you have the foundation for it? Are you a leader for that business? And that's where I'm, I'm really activated. And sometimes I even see some of my grad creating, you know, I create those gurus sometimes. I'm like, no, don't be one of those, please, please, please. So I have to call them out and they know me and they know my croissant. So I can call it out. Why is that? Because everyone is attracted by those kind of external recipe of success. But what is truly success for you? And this goes back to you. And it's not necessarily making a 50K month, running on the treadmill, not making any profit, not having a team, not seeing your family. What is success for you? How do you spot a guru? What are some of the telltale signs for you to help people choose better? Mm, So what I tell them, go on LinkedIn. Go on LinkedIn and check if they're on LinkedIn. It's just like, it's, it's your curriculum, right? Before getting into your course, I went on your LinkedIn. She said she worked for Laurel. Does she? Because unfortunately, you have people out there who claim something and then you realize that they were an intern in that firm and they lasted three weeks. And you're like, so you said you were a strategy consultant or you have a diploma, but it's actually a Udemy diploma. And sorry, no offense there. I'm just like, <laughs> I don't know, but it's just like go on LinkedIn. And I know on LinkedIn, people can create fake profile as well. But look at, you know, the reference, like the review received. I have review on my LinkedIn from the managing director of TerraCycle, from the managing director of Samsara. Like I have fucking great review on my LinkedIn. So just go and check it out. I am not a guru. I am not a self-declared business doula. This is backed by study, experience, and received feedback that I didn't bribe anyone to write or I didn't transform. Because unfortunately, I have seen my own feedback from one of my mentors being put on her website and on her Instagram, and since then we part way, where she transformed my testimonial because she wanted to claim back where I am now as being the results of me working with her, which is not true. And this is lack of integrity. And unfortunately, nowadays, you have a lot of lack of integrity. So first of all, go on LinkedIn, do some cross-check. Then look at whoever has given a a review. If you know them or if you've connected with them at one degree, two degree, which is what I love about LinkedIn, you can then email them, which I did before buying your course, Mia, for transparency, which I did before hiring my book mentor to write my book, which I did before hiring, you know, Odette to help me with my PR. I fact check. Mm. Are they for real? Love that. What if they don't have LinkedIn? Is that red flag? Oh, it's red flag for me. Okay, there you go. I love that. (laughs) But then again, this is my process. But Mm -hmm. it starts first with intuition. So before I do all my fact check, what I do, it's like I feel called to work with that person. Mm -hmm. I'm like, "Mm, there is something, authenticity, integrity, impact are my key value, community. I'm like, "Mm, there is something about this chick. I want to work with her. Or this boy, sorry, I shouldn't take her. But I, I like to only give back money to feminine, this is my feminist, um, you know, mindset, but I like to support women-led business owners. So I buy most of, I would say everything I should say now from women-led businesses, but I look first, am I feeling called to work with that woman? And then I cross-check with data and facts and LinkedIn is part of the process, cross-checking with previous alumni or people that worked with that person. And then I go on. Love that. Okay. So that leads perfectly 
into my next question, and I mean this with enormous respect. You know that I'm a huge fan of you. You work at the intersection of spirituality and business. For the uninitiated, uh, me, can you explain how the moon and the stars and the sun affect your business? Oh my gosh, it's like 10 questions in one. (laughs) I love it. We've got time. Take your time. We've got time. So for me, as a human being and as a business owner and your business as well, we are cyclical. And that's what I love to connect with the sun. So we can start with the sun, which is easier. You connect with a different season. We have four seasons and you have those seasons in your business as well. You have the spring when you plan those ideas. Then you have the summer when it's full bloom and you're like, oh my gosh, this is all beautiful. And then you harvest it in autumn. And then in winter, you rest and you let this compost and rejuvenate so that you can go again and plant new seeds. So this is like the symbol of the fall season. But then I love to teach my clients around the eight Shabbats. So the eight festivals that we celebrate in my own tradition, coming from a paganism family in the south of France. So very ancient spiritual wisdom. Again, I am not a self-declared spiritual person who discovered about the sun and the moon and the cycle last week. I've been raised with this, even though I rejected it for a long time. If you're in my book, you'll understand that. I rejected it for a long time because I was, I was like thinking that to be a leader and to be an amazing corporate product, I needed to dissociate myself from the cycle and from all that I have learned from my background and my upbringing. Yet now I see the power in moving the two. So this is an illustration around what it means to align with the cycle of the season and embracing this cycle of the season in your business. If you're always in summer, if you're always on the go, 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 then you burn out because summer is fire and it's just always under the fire energy. And there is this beautiful Pixar movie, which is coming out very soon about the elements, telling you I'm going to do a lot of content around this. It is so timely with my book and all of that, but we need the five different elements in our business as we need the different season and as we need the different moon cycle. So I love to teach my client to work with the energy of the season rather than against it. As business owners, we're like farmers. So we need to reconnect with that. The farmer and my grandparents were farmer and asked my grandma is still alive. She's still a farmer. She will align her day with the cycle of the season and with the cycle of the moon as well. She will plant in this specific moon. She will harvest in this specific moon. So it's just reconnecting with that. And it's, it's not using it as an excuse to do nothing or to do everything at that point in time. It is about bringing awareness to your own energy and how you're impacted because we are all impacted differently by the season and by the cycle. About the stars is I love to use astrology as well. I'm an astrologer. And it's also looking at your innate blueprint. When you were born, what is your star sign, your moon sign, your rising sign, where is Jupiter in your chart and all that. And just working with it. Again, I'm not someone who believes in determinism, but I believe in information. And this is data. It's data collection about yourself. It all starts with awareness. Yeah, that is fascinating how you've just, yeah, you've reframed it a little bit for me as it is data Mm, That was super fascinating. I loved what you said about this is your upbringing 
And so that this is probably written in your genetic code a little bit and in your DNA. So marketers love data, but they've come to over-rely on it, okay? Like I see marketers every day, like that's who I work with, whether they're business owners running their own marketing or they're actual professional marketers, where they are just paralyzed by the lack of data. Like, oh, they can't do anything until the data tells them Mm -hmm. to do it. And so they will hesitate making decisions because they just don't have enough data, which entrepreneurs are very different. We, We move quickly and break things. There's also many different ways to interpret data. I saw a LinkedIn post actually today that talked about the divorce rate in Americans has actually slowed down. And so you could interpret that as being, oh, people are getting less divorces, but actually the data showed that people are actually not getting married as much. So that's why the divorce rate has gone down. So it's the same data point, but you can interpret it in two different ways. So when do we listen to the data and when do we listen to our intuition? I love it. I love your question and I love your illustration. And I have mentioned that quickly. I've worked for 15 years in strategy consulting and we use a lot of data in strategy consulting. And we always played with the data because you can look at a data and depending if you want to work on a merger and acquisition and M&A, depending on which side of the M&A you're part of, you can say this is a great data or this is a bad data. Data are data. In the end, to interpret your data, you use your intuition. What is the meaning of those data? What does it mean for me? Is it a place I need to go to or is it a place I need to avoid? And if you don't have data, even the biggest entrepreneur around us, you know, the Richard Branson, the Steve Jobs, the Elon Musk, they trust their intuition. They will write that down. It's like at some point you have to make a decision. This decision is as much led by data as it is led by their own drive. And these drives either comes within if they're really in tune with their intuition or it comes from outsourcing this intuition to someone else's intuition. You know, these gatekeepers that you go to and you're like, so what should I do? And if you use a should, it means you're outsourcing this decision to someone else and you come with the data and you're like, what should I do? Which is a position I've been in for a long time as a strategy consultant. It was like, this is our data. This is our organization. This is our strategy. What should we do next? And they were outsourcing it to me. Or how much should I price this? Should, should, should. You can use your intuition for all of that. Of course, gather your data. Do your marketing research. I am a human-centered design accredited person. I use all of the methodologies, the design thinking, all of those things, you know. But I also use my intuition. It's like what you say, marketing is a merge of art and science. I'd say everything. And art is intuitively led, like those creation. They are channeled by those artists. And when you have a great creative for your campaign, it's just like this moment where like, oh my gosh, I have an idea. This idea comes from whatever you believe in. It can come from God, it can come from the universe, or it can come from your inner voice, from this little chatter within yourself, which I call the intuition, your gut. And it is then validated by the data. It's both of them together. It's not one or the other. I really want you to understand listening to this that you can weave both. And it's not about balance 50-50 or no. It's about harmony. 
Sometimes you will have more data and less space for intuition and sometimes more space for intuition and less space for data. It is not a 50-50 rules. It really depends in yourself, in the decision you're making, in the direction you're going to. Sometimes for me, it's like purely intuitive. I do crazy things sometimes, but then it makes sense afterwards. And sometimes it's more guided by data. So really looking at those. So what did you think of our very first mixtape? Send me a DM on Instagram or LinkedIn and let me know. I love hearing from our listeners. You listened right up until the end. So why not hit that subscribe button and keep the good marketing rolling? Podcast reviews are like warm hugs and they're also the best way to support a small business. You can connect with me, Mia Feilman, on Instagram or LinkedIn. And feel free to send me a message. I'm super friendly. 